we continue in the reading of God's Word, so please rise as we read from Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 18. Hear the reading of God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to the work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we do give you thanks and we do rejoice for you have given us your Word. Holy Spirit, guide these words to these people gathered here today. Watch over them, guide them, and protect them. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus who lives forever. Amen. You may be seated. People will come, Ray. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of stream rollers. It has been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again, but baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good and could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will come. I love baseball. <laughs> I love baseball for many reasons, and the speech that James Earl Jones' character, Terrence Mann, in the field of dreams is, is inked into the very fabric of who we are, isn't it? So is baseball, along with its history and all of its traditions. It's part of the culture of our country, whether you like baseball or not. We know baseball. It's part of our existence. It's tattooed on us almost. But I love baseball for other reasons as well. Too many to really delve into all of them here today. But the memories I have are what's special to me. Memories of spending time with people that I love and who loved me. The people that we love and who love us. Some of you have memories of spending baseball games with your dads or your grandfathers or your brothers or your sisters or your grandmas. Many of us have memories of Little League and the shared community that we have there. We have memories that are imprinted. 
That's why I love baseball, for the memories I have. One of the first memories that I have of baseball, and one of the first memories that I have really as a young boy who, who loved sports and who loved to play sports and loved to play baseball, I remember the coach that I had was, was, a, was the dad of one of my best friends. And I remember the first day of practice, I kind of knew how to hold the baseball bat, but not really. So he taught me how to hold the bat, my left hand under my right. He told me to put my elbows out a little bit and to put my feet just about shoulder width apart. And he told me to stand on the left side of, the, of home plate. That way I could swing all the way through. And then there was a tee, right? A baseball tee. And he put a baseball on top of that tee. And he checked my hands and he checked my, my elbows and he checked my feet. And he said, look at the ball. Watch the ball. Because if you don't look at the ball, you're not going to be able to hit the ball. So whatever you do, look at the ball. I don't remember if I hit the ball or if I missed the ball. In my mind, I hit one over the fence. Probably not. I probably dribbled it about four feet in front of the, of the plate and it did its thing. But this is a simple lesson for a simple game, isn't it? Watch the ball. See the ball and hit the ball. But as you know, baseball is a game that the ball is not sitting on the tee, is it? If you were to watch a Major League Baseball game today, the chances are you would see a Major League pitcher throwing the ball at about 100 miles an hour, and it doesn't just go in a straight line, but it goes like this, and it goes like this, and it goes all over the place, and so now you have to hit a moving round object with another round object squarely. This is the challenge of baseball. So now if you do this 25% of the time, you're a Hall of Famer. If you do this 40% of the time, you're the greatest looker of the ball at all time. So the moral of this little illustration this morning is look at the ball. If we don't look at the ball, we can't hit the ball. Paul didn't have baseball. Perhaps he wishes now that he did. But I wonder if he knew the game, would he have used it as an illustration for these verses here this morning? Because there's a lot of truth in the illustration of baseball, but also for what he's telling his beloved friends in Philippi. He's telling them to look. He's actually giving them a command, look, look at the ball, because he's telling them exactly the same thing. Look at the ball. Remember that this indeed is a letter of encouragement to his friends, the ones he really truly does love and, and cherishes. He wants to encourage them as they face oppression and opposition in a very Roman city that was very pro-emperor. His encouragement to them is found in verse 16, if you want to look there. He says, in order to live this life, in order to, to move forward in this life, wherever you find yourself, hold fast. Do you see that? Hold fast to the word of life. And then he gives them the answers as to how to do this. He gives them the answer to the obvious question that they must have already been asking, the one that we're asking as well. How do I hold fast to the word of life? Or... Where do I look? In my daily walk, where, where do I look? Where do, where do I go? How do I do this? I don't quite understand. So in order to answer that question, I would like to unpack a bit of the phraseology that Paul employs here in verse 16, where he says, hold fast to the word of life. By using this phrase, Paul emphasizes to this congregation, his dear friends, just how it is. He describes all of these things in the earlier verses. He tells them all of this stuff. 
But he's really saying, hold fast. Hold fast. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Hold fast to the word of life. This word of life, holding fast, the verb, the phrase, and the original, this holding fast means a, a couple different things for us. First definition would say this, to maintain a grasp on someone or something, to, to literally hold fast, right? To be mindful of or especially observant, to remain at a place. One commentator puts this definition this way. In order not to be overwhelmed or snuffed out by the opposition of the world, the church needs to maintain a grasp on the word of life. Paul's concern is that the persecuted church will stand firm in the one spirit without being frightened by those who oppose them. A strong defense of the word of life keeps its light shining bright in the dark world for all to see. So we're beginning to see the the first steps in what it means to, to hold fast to the word of life. So let's unpack a little bit further. What is the word of life? This is not a hard question to answer, but it needs to be answered. The word of life is indeed Jesus, isn't it? The fact that he is highly exalted. It also means that he's been placed in a position that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We're acknowledging that he is the word of life, and the Lord acknowledges that he is the word of life. And this word, this Jesus, Jesus then generates life in all who hear and believe in Christ. Paul calls, as another commentator puts it, Paul calls for the attitude of every believer to be transformed by focusing in on Christ, to look at Christ, right? He urges the church to demonstrate their firm grasp of the message of Christ by the way they live out their life of Christ in their relationships with one another. So this person saying to us, look at Christ, and the way you hold fast is by demonstrating that Christ is your Savior and how you live out your life because of that. Or in other words, look at the ball. Look at Jesus. How do we hold fast to this word of life? I still haven't answered that question for me, Ryan. How do I do that? Foundationally, because Jesus is highly exalted, is why and how we hold on to the word of life. His accomplished work for you and for me on the cross, it humbles us. His life, his death and resurrection on my rebellious behalf is a lot like the coach. Here's the ball. Here's how you hold your hands. Here's how your feet are to be aligned. Basically, the fundamentals of baseball. The fundamentals for our Christian faith, the fundamentals for how we hold fast are found in this, in these verses in Philippians chapter 2. The fundamentals of the Christian faith is the fundamental of the gospel. Jesus humbled himself, took on flesh, was obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we do not have that as the foundation of our lives, we'll never be able to swing and hit the ball. We'll flail and we'll strike out every time. So we look at Jesus, we look at the fundamentals of our faith. Here's the ball. Look at the ball. Here's how we're obedient. Look at Jesus. Here's how we're faithful. Look at Jesus. Because He's highly exalted. And His name is above every name. So then, you still haven't answered the question, Ryan. How do we move forward? How do we face this world? How how do we hold fast this word of life? We must understand the fundamentals of this activity. We have to look at the correct spot. 
As much as it appears at first glance that what Paul is saying to us in these verses, the command seems to be saying, you have to grip stronger. You have to grab that bat tighter. You have to hold on stronger. Because if you don't, you'll miss completely and everything will be a failure. You, ha- you have to focus in on it. You have to grip it. You have to grip what you can control to focus on yourselves. But that's not what he's saying at all. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul, like, again, the Little League coach, literally tells his friends. He's not telling them to look at the ball, is he? You see that in verse 4? What's he telling them to look at? Look at others. Look at others. And how are we to look at others as more significant than ourselves? To hold fast the word of life, Paul says, is to understand and to know the fundamentals of the gospel and then to look away from yourself and look to others. This seems counterproductive to the way we normally think about life. But yet this is what Paul's telling us. So the hold fast of the word of life in these verses means at least three things. It means we need to look to sameness. We need to look to submission. And we need to look to shine. So let's look at the first, few verse, first four verses. In verses 1-4, to four, Paul specifically tells us to look away from ourselves and to look to others. We could stop right there and we could end the sermon and you could take something away from that. And it would be good and it would be right. But not everything would be in order. And holding fast to the word of life... Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your grip, right? Stop looking at your shoulders. Stop looking at your stance. Stop looking at where your feet are to home plate. And look at the ball. Look at the pitcher and see where the ball's coming in at. Stop trying to make sure that although important, every theological tick and jot is absolutely and positively correct. Although important, we need to keep our focus on the ball. Stop trying to make sure that you have everything correct and whatever the current social issue is or is not. Where do we stand on this side or this side? Rather, stop and look. Stop and look to the person to your left, to your right. Look to the person in front of you and behind you. To hold on to the word of life. To hold on to Jesus means to look at other people in your life. To look at their needs. To look at their desires. To look at how we can serve them. How we can love them. And once we've slowed down a little bit, just a little bit, once we've slowed down just a little bit from preserving ourselves and our needs, then Paul gives us three very practical things to do as to what does it mean or what does it look like to, to look at others and, and, to, and to see their needs as more significant than ourselves. It says we look to the sameness, to the sameness that we have with one another. These very three things are. The first one, do you see that there? Look and to see that you have the same mind. This is an extremely important topic for Paul in these verses. 
He's urging this church, this church at Philippi, he's urging them to be like-minded in the turmoil of life. And this is the very core element of their existence together, to be like-minded. He wants them to to strive to have this sameness, this like-mindedness for the kind of community that he describes here in these few first verses of chapter 2. He's pleading with them that in order for them to flourish and to hold fast to the word of life, they must do nothing from selfish ambition. They must do nothing from conceit and to count others as more significant than themselves. We, we could have a very Pollyanna approach to this and understanding of this verse and say to ourselves, well, those people are in the Bible and that's not really applying to me and that's just kind of a nice story to tell and Paul, you're just giving some casual instructions as to what this looks like. It's all that much more difficult to look at our own lives and say, wait a minute, Paul, you're telling me, Ryan, to not do things motivated from my own self and my own good, out of my own comfort, my own control, my own conceit, my own selfish ambition. You're telling me to lay all of that down? You're telling me to set that aside? You're telling me to look at these other people in this building, at this place, and in my family, and their needs are more important than mine? And, And their flourishing is more important to mine? Yes. This is the very reason that Paul is saying this is how we hold on to the word of life. Because this is what Jesus has done for us. He's providing the fundamentals for us to what does this look like to look at others. The fundamental of serving others is to set aside your own personal gain. To set aside your own selfish ambitions and trust me when I say it to you, that's really, really, really hard to do. Yeah, but that's a fundamental of our faith. As fundamental it is to have your left hand under your right when you swing a baseball bat. And then he says more. He says also, having the same love. We begin to ask more questions then, don't we? How do I look to others as more significant to me? It begins with loving the same things. Paul is building on what he started in the first chapter, specifically 1 verse 9, where his prayer is that, they, that their love may abound more and more and, and moves from a prayer in chapter 1 to a command here in chapter 2. The love needs to be of the same thing. It's also building upon the concept that he's raised in chapter 1 where there are some who preach for selfish gain and others who preach for the sole glory of Jesus have the same mind, he commands, in addition to the command to the churches to love Christ as... to love the church, excuse me, to love the church as Christ loves the church. It's with this sameness of mind that we love one another. Now, is that sameness of mind and that we're loving the same thing for really practical things, like we all need to be Texas Rangers fans? No. Right? Of course not. So what is he telling us to be the same mindness? What is it that we're to love together? It's the fundamental of our faith. It's the gospel. It's who Jesus is and what he's done. And that we love one another. This is the fundamental thing that we are sameness about. The sameness of mind is that we all set aside our selfish ambitions and we seek the good 
of the other as more significant than ourselves. This is the same love that he's talking about. The last of these three practical steps is to be in full accord and one mind. In other words, the same spirit, or more literally, it means souls together, that we're joined on our souls together, or harmonious. Also building upon chapter 1, in which he says in verse 28, striving together with one accord or one soul. Perhaps it may be better said to be unified in friendship. One person says friendship is equality or souls bound together. The instruction that Paul provides this small church in Philippi, and yes, to us this morning, be friends with one another. Be friends with one another and set aside your selfish ambition for the striving and the sake of the other person. And the person to your left and to your right and in front and behind you is more significant than yourselves. This is the fundamental of holding fast to the word of life. I thought about these things for some time this week. And this almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Man, what if we really had a church that looked like that? What if we really truly had a church that we could set aside our selfish ambitions? What if we really had a church where we indeed were all friends and we were all like-minded and with the same love? Wouldn't that be great? And this is what Paul calls us to. This is not a pipe dream. This is not some manifestation of some preacher. But it's the very reality in which Paul is urging us towards. It's a command to to be like-minded. But how is this even possible? Because we look around and we may even have people in this room like, I don't want to be friends with that person. What? I don't, we don't have the same mind of certain things. We don't agree on this or that. How, how is this even possible to, to, make, to, to make a church that looks like that? It's, it's, it's crazy. And yet Paul commands it to us. But there's something, the way, there's something about the way Paul writes. As he poses things for us, He poses propositions and commands, but then he also anticipates the questions that follow, doesn't he? Like, how is that possible? How is it possible to be that kind of church? To be a kind of church that loves one another with this kind of like-mindedness? To be friends with one another? He answers that question of possibility by urging us to look to another spot. Not only to the others, not only to each other, but we need to look to submission. And in particular, submission at that. So in verses 5 to 11, we begin to see the foundation of our faith. Of what we really are striving to look for and to understand how all of this is possible. How it's possible that we could have a church that looks like the one Paul is describing in Philippi the only way that we begin to understand or accomplish this difficult task is then laid out before us in the first four verses to make sure that we're properly aligned. Just as in baseball, if your feet and your arms are are, are not aligned, then we have a really difficult time in hitting the baseball. If you're a right-handed hitter and you line up on the opposite side of the plate, you'll never be able to hit the ball. So Paul is aligning us to the fundamentals of the gospel. 
And the fundamentals of the gospel are then outlined and aligned for us here in a very dramatic and poignant and wonderful way. Maybe perhaps, arguably, in, in like, unlike any other portion in all of Scripture combined. The fundamentals of the gospel are rarely more clearly defined than they are here in the second chapters of Philippians. The second chapter of Philippians, excuse me. Paul goes on to show us these things. He realizes... He realizes the difficulty of the task that he's asking this church to perform. And he says, I get it, but here's how. Here's how you do this. And he illustrates exactly what he's talking about. And then Paul does something remarkable. There are seven verses here that many have coined as a Christ hymn, a Christ song. And simply arranged, we can put it this way. There are six verses with three stanzas in each verse. So just track with me for a second. So in the, in the next few verses that we have here, in, in chapter 2 of Philippians, if we go from verse 5 um, all the way down to verse 11, we have this wonderful Christ hymn. So we're going to pick up in verse 6, and here's the first verse with three stanzas. Though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. First verse. Second verse. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Second verse. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Third verse. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Fourth verse. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Fifth verse. And the sixth and final stanza of these verses. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses are woven together in such a beautiful tapestry, aren't they? A wonderful tapestry that allows us to to easily look at exactly what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. For each and every one of His beloved people. And so here, Paul speaking to his beloved friends and me here speaking to you, my beloved friends. This is how. The only way for us to look at others, the only way that we can even begin, even take one step, one stride to having the kind of church that Paul is describing here, is to look at these verses is to look at what it means to set aside our selfish ambition, to set aside our desires, our wants, and to consider someone else as more significant than ourselves. We need to look at these few verses, at this Christ hymn. You see, Jesus left everything. And He took on flesh. He left everything He left the glory of heaven and He left the glory of the throne and He submitted to the will of the Father that Jesus would then die a gruesome and horrible death that was meant for the sins of your life and mine. He submitted to the point of death. And this is no ordinary death. He did not pass quietly in His bed one evening. He didn't die of natural causes or old age. He submitted to the point of death. Even death on a cross. 
No, he died with his back ripped. He died with his back ripped and shredded by whips. He died being punched in the face and spit upon. He died with a crown of thorns thrust upon his beaten face and head. He died to a jeering crowd of onlookers who mocked him as the king of the Jews. Save yourself. How can you save others if you cannot save yourself? He died, he died with nails gouging his wrists, piercing his feet. He died with his lungs failing. He died alone on a hill outside the comfort and the safety of the city walls. Look at the ball. This is what submission looks like. We're not being asked to die his death. We're not being asked to die his death for ourselves or even for ourselves. It's already been accomplished. It's already been done. Jesus died that death on your behalf. He took those nails. He took those punches. He took those whips. So you wouldn't have to. Jesus died in your place to forgive your sins. My sins. We're not being asked to die that death, but we're being asked to do something else. We're being asked to submit. We're being asked to set aside our selfish desires, our selfish ambitions, and to consider others more significant than ourselves because Jesus considers you more significant than himself. Look at the ball. Because this is what Jesus did for you. This is the very fundamental element of who we are. If we don't have this, we have nothing. This is how we live our lives as Christians. This is what we do. This is how we do it because this is what's been done for us. If we fail to look and see this, if we fail to remember this hymn of the Gospel, this song of Christ, we will never ultimately understand what it means to live a life that holds fast to the Word of life. This must be who we are. If you go to a Little League game sometime in the near future, I would encourage you to, to look away from the pitcher and the, and, the, and the batter and the catcher. And I'll ask you to look into right field. <laughs> Have you ever done this? Going a little late and there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's the outfielders at Little League games. And the, and the child, the boy or the girl who is in right field is usually the one that sits down, plucks the grass, picks the dandelions, and is waving at his grandma. Right? We know this kid. The ball gets hit to him. He has no clue. Rolls to the fence and the runners are scoring and everyone's cheering and he continues to pick the dandelions and he's just fine. He wasn't looking at the ball. If we don't grasp these verses of Philippians 2, we swing, we miss, and we're left picking the dandelions. So may we look at the cross this morning And when we look at the cross, 
we see what it looks like to love. We see what it looks like to hold fast. And then we're able to hold our gaze fast upon the Lord Jesus Christ, upon His cross, and realize that it's He who holds us fast. Right? Is that great song that we know? We are then are able, then are able to serve others. We are then able to look at others and say, yes, you are more significant than me because Jesus has made me more significant than Himself. And He died for me, so I will die for you. He loves me, so I will love you. We're able to do this without grumbling and complaining. But rather with a joy and a gladness that Paul talks about. To do this with joy and gladness, even in a world that is dark and cynical. And this then leads us to the final portion of the text here this morning. That when we have this understanding, this understanding of what Jesus has done, this type of submission, this type of, of approach to setting aside our selfish ambition, then, then Paul tells us to go. Go and do it. Go and shine this light into the community. Shine this into your world. We have this as our understanding. We're able to serve in a manner that is worthy of the hymn that was just sung for us. If we remember that, that we are the crooked and twisted rebels that Paul's talking about. We are the twisted and crooked rebels that hung Jesus on the cross. We will rightly remember that our generation too is is crooked and twisted. And we have an opportunity to to shine the light of what Jesus has done for us, for all of us, into this community, into this crooked and twisted world, into our own crooked and twisted worlds. I think we often have illusions as to what that looks like to to shine our light, right? Remember as a child singing singing that song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? We know that song well. But I confess to you that I often thought that when I sang that song as I got, got older, that for me to shine my light actually meant that I had to have some neat, nice little package evangelism speech ready to go when the opportunity arises. Right? I, need, I just need to be ready to go with, with what Jesus has done for my life. And there are times and there are opportunities when that's good and that's right, but, but really what does it mean to shine our light Paul is saying to serve someone else. To make them more significant than yourself. That's what it means to shine the light of Jesus because this is what Jesus has done for us. And so as we approach this, we now begin to think, oh, where is it and how is it that I can serve? What does that look like for me to serve my neighbor? What does it look like for me to serve this church? I just be really, really practical this morning with you. We have a nursery that needs servers. That's women. That's men. That's families with kids and families without kids. There's a need to serve. We have a Sunday school hour that needs people to serve, to teach, to volunteer, to sit in the classroom with the little ones of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have a missions team that needs people to serve. 
they're going to need a new president. Because Ravina, after over 20 years of serving in that capacity, is stepping down at the first of the year. There are places all over. There's greedy teams. We need people to greet. We need people to serve communion. To set up communion, I should say. These are just really practical things, even in the life of this church. Where, where is it that I can set aside my selfish ambition that, no, I, I have to be in the service all the time in order for me to, to feel fulfilled? What Paul is saying to us is we need to set some of that aside and we need to consider others more significant than ourselves. Now, I know many of us serve and we serve a lot. And we're a relatively small congregation, but there are opportunities all over the place where we can set aside our selfish desires and serve our church and serve each other. And that's not even then to begin to think, what does it look like to serve our husband or our wife, our mom or our dad, our our son or our daughter, our grandkids? That could be a whole other sermon. But this is the fundamental of our faith. Paul says to shine, and to shine means to serve, to look away from ourselves. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the word of life. Why and how? Because Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Because you are more significant than himself. And he says to us, hold fast. Look at the ball. Look at the cross, friends. So as we walk away from this place this morning, look to Jesus. Hold fast to the word of life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for what you have done for us for how you've loved us, for how you've served us. Holy Spirit, move in our lives, move in our hearts to shine this light in our families, in our church, and in this community. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.